Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves by P.G. Woodhouse. Volume 2. Chapter 4. And I'll tell you why I was all a twitter. My critique of her when chatting with Emerald Stoker will have shown how allergic I was to this basset beazle. She was scarcely less of a pain in the neck to me than I was to her father, or Roderick Spode. Nevertheless, there was a grave danger I might have to take here for better or worse, as the Book of Rules put it. The facts may be readily related. Gussie, enamoured of the Basset, would have liked to let her in on the way he felt, but every time he tried to do so, his nerve deserted him, and he found himself babbling about newts. At a loss to know how to swing the deal, he got the idea of asking me to plead his cause, and when I pleaded it, the Basset, as pronounced a fathead as ever broke biscuit, thought I was pleading my cause. She said she was so, so sorry to cause me pain, but her heart belonged to Gussie, which would have been fine had she not gone on to say that if anything should ever happen to make her revise her conviction that he was king among men and she was compelled to give him the heave-ho, I was next in line. And while she could never love me with the same fervour she felt for Gussie, she would do her best to make me feel happy. I was, in a word, in the position of a vice president of the United States, who, while feeling that he is all right so far, knows that he will be in for it at a moment's notice if anything goes wrong with the man up top. Little wonder, then, that Gussie's statement that Madeline made him sick smote me like a ton of bricks, and had me indoors and bellowing for G's before you could say what ho. As had so often happened before, I felt that my only course was to place myself in the hands of a higher power. Sir? He said, manifesting himself. A ghastly thing has happened, Jeeves. Disaster looms. Indeed, sir. I'm sorry to hear that. There's one thing you have to give Jeeves credit for. He lets the dead past bury its D. He and the young master may have had differences about alpine hats with pink feathers in them, but when he sees the YM on the receiving end of the slings and arrows about Rachel's fortune, he sinks his dudgeon and comes through with the feudal spirit at its best. So now, instead of being cold and distant and aloof, as any lesser man would have been, he showed the utmost agitation and concern. That is to say, he allowed one eyebrow to rise perhaps an eighth of an inch, which is as far as he ever goes in the way of expressing emotion. What would appear to be the trouble, sir? I sank into a chair and mopped the frontal bone. Not for many a day had I been in such a doodah. I've just seen Gussie Finknottle, Jeeves. Yes, sir. Mr. Finknottle was here a moment ago. I met him outside. He was in a cab. And you know what? No, sir. I happened to mention Miss Bassett's name, and he said, Follow this closely, Jeeves. He said, I quote, Don't talk to me about Madeline. Madeline makes me sick. Close quotes. Indeed, sir. Those are not the words of love, Jeeves. No, sir. They are the words of a man who has for some reason not disclosed is fed to the front teeth with the adored subject. I hadn't time to go into the matter because a moment later he was off like a scalded cat to Paddington, but it's pretty clear there must have been a rift in the, what do you call it, it begins with a, an L. Would loot be the word for which you are groping, sir? Possibly. I don't know that I care to bet on it, though. The poet Tennyson speaks of the little rift within the lute, that by and by will make the music mute, and ever-widening slowly silence all. Then loot it is, and we know what's going to happen if this particular loot goes fought. We exchanged significant glances. At least I gave him a significant glance, and he looked like a stuffed frog. His habit when being discreet. He knows just how I'm situated with regards to M. Bassett, but naturally we don't discuss it, except by going into the significant glance stuffed frog routine. I mean, you can't talk about a thing like that. I don't know if it would actually come under the head of speaking lightly of a woman's name, but it wouldn't be seemly, and the Worcesters are sticklers for seemliness. So, for that matter, are the Jeeveses. What do you think I ought to do? Sir? Don't stand there, sirring! You know as well as I do that a situation has arisen which calls for the immediate coming of all good men to the aid of the party. It is of the essence that Gussie's engagement does not spring a leak. 
Steps must be taken. It would certainly seem advisable, sir. But what steps? I ought, of course, to hasten to the seat of war and try to stop the Dove of Peace going into its act. Have a bash, in other words, at seeing what a calm, kindly man of the world can do to bring the young folks together, if you get what I mean. I apprehend you perfectly, sir. Your role, as I see it, would be that of what the French call Rosanour. You're probably right, but mark this. Apart from the fact that the mere thought of being under the roof of Totley Towers again is one that freezes the gizzard, there's another snag. I was talking to Stinker Pinker just now, and he says that Stiffy Bing has something she wants me to do for her. Well, you know the sort of thing Stiffy generally wants people to do. You recall the episode of Constable Oates' helmet? Very vividly, sir. Oates had incurred a displeasure by reporting to her uncle Watkin that her dog Bartholomew had spilled him off his bicycle, causing him to fall into a ditch and sustain bruises and contusions. And she persuaded Harold Pinker, a man in holy orders who buttons his collar at the back, to pinch his helmet for her. And that was comparatively mild for Stiffy. There are no limits, literally none, to what she can think of when she gives her mind to it. The imagination boggles at the thought of what she may be cooking up for me. Certainly you may be pardoned for feeling apprehensive, sir. So there you are. I'm in the horns of... Oh, what are those things you get in the horns of? Dilemmas, sir. That's right. I'm in the horns of a dilemma. Shall I... I ask myself to go and see what I can accomplish in the way of running repairs on the loot? Or would it be more prudent to stay put and let nature take its course, trusting to time, the great healer, to do its stuff? If I may make a suggestion, sir... Please, press on, Jeeves. Would it not be possible for you to go to Totley Towers, but decline to carry out Miss Bing's wishes? I weighed this. It was. I could see a thought. Issue a nola posequi, you mean? Tell her to go and boil her head? Precisely, sir. I eyed him reverently. Jeeves, as always you have found the way. I'll wire Miss Bassett, asking if I can come, and I'll wire Aunt Dahlia that I can't give her lunch as I'm leaving town, and I'll tell Stiffy that whatever she has in mind, she gets no service and cooperation from me. Yes, Jeeves, you hit on it. I'll go to Totley, though the flesh creeps at the prospect. Pop Bassett will be there. Spode will be there. Stiffy will be there. The dog Bartholomew will be there. Makes one wonder why so much fuss has been made about those half-a-league, half-a-league, half-a-league onward bimbos who rode into the Valley of Death. They weren't going to find Bob Bassett at the other end. Ah, well, let's hope for the best. The only course to pursue, sir. Stiff upper lip, Jeeves, eh, what? Indubitably, sir. That, if I may say so, is the spirit. Chapter 5 a stinker had predicted Madeline Bassett placed no obstacle in the way of my visiting Totley Towers. In response to my invitation-catching missive, she gave me the green light, and an hour or so after her telegram had arrived, Aunt Dahlia rang up from Brinkley, full of eagerness to ascertain what the hell. She was having just received my wire saying that, owing to the absence from the metropolis, I would be unable to give her lunch for which she had been budgeting. Her call came as no surprise. I had anticipated that there might be a certain liveliness on the Brinkley front. The old flesh and blood is a genial soul who loves her Bertram dearly, but she's a woman of imperious spirit. She dislikes having her wishes thwarted, and her voice came booming at me like a pack of hounds in full cry. Bertie, you foul young blot on the landscape! Speaking! I got your telegram! I thought you would. Very efficient, the gramming service. What do you mean you're leaving town? You never leave town except to come down here and wallow in Anatole's cooking. Her allusion was to her peerless French chef, at the mention of whose name the mouth starts watering automatically. God's gift to the gastric juices, I have sometimes called him. Where are you going, Batty? My mouth having stopped watering, I said I was going to Totley Towers, and she uttered an impatient sort of snort. There's something wrong with this blasted telephone wire. It sounded as if you were saying you were going to Totley Towers. I am. To Totley Towers? I leave this afternoon. What in the world made them invite you? 
They didn't. I invited myself. You mean you're deliberately seeking the society of Sir Watkin Bassett? You must be more of an ass than even I had ever thought of you, Bertie. And I speak as a woman who has just had that old bounder in her hair for more than a week. I saw her point and hastened to explain. I admit Pop Bassett is a bit above the odds, I said. And unless one is compelled by circumstances, it's always the wisest not to stir him. But a sharp crisis has been precipitated in my affairs. All is not well between Gussie Finknoddle and Madeline Bassett. Their engagement is tottering toward the melting pot, and you know what that engagement means to me. I'm going down there to try to heal the rift. What can you do? My role as I see it will be of what the French call the raisonneur. And what does that mean? Ah, oh, well, there you have me. But that's what Jeeves says I'll be. Are you taking Jeeves with you? Of course. Do I ever stir foot without him? Well, watch out. That's all I can say. Watch out. I happen to know that Bassett is making overtures to him. What do you mean, overtures? He's trying to steal him from you, Bertie. I reeled and might have fallen had I not been sitting at the time. Incredulous! If you mean incredible, you're wrong. I told you how he had fallen under Jeeves' spell when he was there. He used to follow him with his eyes as he battled, like a cat watching a duck, as Anatole would say. And one morning I heard him making a definite proposition. Well, what's the matter with you, Bertie? Have you fainted? I told her that my momentary silence had been due to the fact that her words had stunned me, and she said she didn't see why, knowing Bassett, I should be so surprised. You can't have forgotten how he tried to steal Anatole. There isn't anything to which that man won't stoop. He has no conscience whatsoever. When you get to Totley, go and see someone called Plank and ask him what he thinks of Sir Watkin Ruddy Bassett. He chiseled this poor devil Plank out of a... Oh, hell! Said the aged relative as a voice intoned, Three minutes. And she hung up, having made my flesh creep as nimbly as if she had been my guardian angel on whose talent in that direction I have already touched. It was still creeping with undiminished gusto as I steered the sports model along the road to Totley in the world that afternoon. I was convinced, of course, that Jeeves would never dream of severing relations with the old firm, and when urged to do so by this blighted Bassett, would stop his ears like the deaf adder, which, as you probably know, made a point of refusing to hear the voice of the charmer, charm he never so wisely. But the catch is that you can be convinced about a thing and nevertheless get pretty jumpy when you muse on it, and it was in no tranquil mood that I eased the Arab steed through the gates of Totley Tower and fetched up to the front door. I don't know if you happen to have come across a hymn, the chorus of which goes, Tum, tumpty, tumpty, tum, tumpty, tiddlyum, pomp, isle, where every prospect pleases, and only man is vile. Or the worst of that effect. But the description would have fitted Totley Tower like the paper on the wall. Its facade, its spreading grounds, rolling parkland, smoothly shaven lawns, and whatnot were all just like Mother makes. But what percentage was there in that when you knew what was waiting inside for you? It's never a damn bit of use, a prospect of pleasing, if the gang that goes with it lets it down. This Laravelle Bassus was one of the fairly stately homes of England. Not a showplace like you read about, with 365 rooms, 52 staircases, and 12 courtyards. But definitely not a bungalow. He had bought it furnished some time previously from a Lord Somebody who needed cash, as many do these days. Not Pop Bassett, though. In the evening of his life, he had more than a sufficiency. It would not be going too far indeed to describe him as stinking rich. For a great part of his adult life, he had been a metropolitan police magistrate, and in that capacity once fined me five quid for a mere light-hearted peccadillo on boat race night, when a mild reprimand would have more than met the case. It was shortly after this that a relative died and left him a vast fortune. That, at least, was a story given out. What really happened, of course, was that all through his years as a magistrate, he had been trousering the fines, amassing the stuff in sackfuls. Five quid here, five quid there, it soon mounts up. We had made goodish going on the road, and it wasn't more than about 4.40 
when I rang the front doorbell. Jeeves took the car to the stables, and the butler, Butterfield was his name, I remembered, led me to the drawing room. Mr. Wooster, he said, loosing me in. I was not surprised to find tea in progress, for I had heard the clinking of cups. Madeline Bassett was at the controls, and she extended a drooping hand to me. Bertie, how nice to see you. I can well imagine that a casual observer, if I had confided to him my qualms at the idea of being married to this girl, would have raised his eyebrows and been at a loss to understand. For she was undeniably an eyeful, being slim, svelte, and bountifully equipped with golden hair and all the fixings. But where the casual observer would have been making his bloomer was in overlooking that squashy soupiness of hers, that subtle air that she had of being on the point of talking baby talk. She was the sort of girl who puts her hands over her husband's eyes as he's crawling into breakfast with a morning head and says, Guess who? I had once stayed at the residence of a newly married pal of mine, and his bride had carved in large letters over the fireplace in the drawing room, where it was impossible to miss it, the legend, Two lovers built this nest. And I can still recall the look of dumb anguish in the other half of the sketch's eyes every time he came in and saw it. Whether Madeline Bassett, on entering the marital state, would go to such an awful extreme, one could not say, but it seemed most probable, and I resolved that when I started trying to reconcile her with Gussie, I would not scamp my work, but would give it everything I had. Oh, you know, Mr. Pinker, she said, and I perceived that Stinker was present. He was safely wedged in a chair and hadn't, as far as I could see, upset anything yet. But he gave me the impression of a man who was crouching for the spring and would begin to operate shortly. There was a gate-leg table laden with muffins and cucumber sandwiches, which I foresaw would attract him like a magnet. On seeing me, he started visibly, dropping a plate with half a muffin on it, and his eyes had widened. I knew what he was thinking, of course. He supposed that my presence must be due to a change of heart. Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep which was lost, he was no doubt murmuring to himself. I mourned in spirit a bit for the poor fish, knowing what a nasty knock he had coming to him when he got on to it that nothing was going to induce me to undertake whatever the foul commission might be that Stiffy had earmarked for me. On that point I was resolved to be firm, no matter what spiritual agonies he and she suffered in the process. I had long since learned that the secret of a happy and successful life was to steer clear of any project masterminded by that young scourge of the species. The conversation that followed was what you might call... Oh, I've forgotten the word. I mean, with Stinker with an earshot, Madeline and I couldn't get down to brass tacks. So we just chewed the fat. A desultory, that's the word I wanted. We just chewed the fat in a desultory way. Stinker said he was there to talk over the forthcoming school treat with Sir Watkin, and I said, Oh, is there a school treat coming up? And Madeline said it was taking place the day after tomorrow owing to the illness of the vicar, Mr. Pinker would be in sole charge. And Stinker winced a bit, as if he didn't like the prospect much. Madeline asked if I had a nice drive down, and I said, oh, splendid. Stinker said Stiffy would be so pleased I had come, and I smiled one of my subtle smiles. And then Butterfield came in and said Sir Watkin could see Mr. Pinker now. And Stinker oozed off. And the moment the door had closed behind the curate and butler, Madeline clasped her hands and gave me one of those squashy looks and said, Oh, Bertie, you should not have come here. I had not the heart to deny you your pathetic request. I knew how much you yearned to see me again, however briefly, however hopelessly. But was it wise? Is it not merely twisting the knife in the wound? Will it not simply cause you needless pain to be near me? knowing we could never be more than just good friends. It is useless, Bertie. You must not hope. I love Augustus. Her words, as you may well imagine, were music to my ears. She wouldn't, I felt, have come out with anything as definite as this if there had been a really serious spot of trouble between her and Gussie. Obviously that crack of his about her making him sick had been a mere passing, uh, what do you call it, the result of some momentary attack of the pip, caused possibly by her saying that he smoked too much, or something of the sort. Anyway, whatever it was that had rifted the loot was now plainly forgotten and forgiven, and I was saying to myself, the way things looked, 
I ought to be able to duck out of here immediately after breakfast tomorrow, when I noticed that a look of pain had spread over her map, and that the eyes were dewy. It makes me so sad to think of your hopeless love for me, Bertie, she said, adding something which I didn't quite catch about moths and stars. Life is so tragic, so cruel, but what can I do? Not a thing, I said heartily. Just carry on, regardless. But it breaks my heart, Bertie. With these words, she burst into what are sometimes called uncontrollable sobs. She sank into a chair, covering her face with her hands, and it seemed to me that the civil thing to do was pat her on the head. This project I now carried out, and I can see looking back that it was a mistake. I remember Monty Bodkin of the drones, who once patted a weeping female on the head, unaware that his betrothed was standing in his immediate rear, drinking the whole thing in, telling me that the catch in this head-patting routine is that unless you exercise the greatest care, you forget to take your hand off. You just stand there, resting it on the subject's bean, and this is apt to cause the spectators to purse their lips. Monty fell into that error, and so did I, and the lip-pursing was attended to by Spode, who chanced to enter at this moment. Seeing the popsy bathed in tears, he quivered from stem to stern. Maudlin! he yipped. What is the matter? Oh, it's nothing, Roderick, nothing, she replied chokingly. She buzzed off, no doubt to bathe her eyes, and Spode pivoted round and gave me a penetrating look. He had grown a bit, I noticed, since I'd last seen him, being now about nine foot seven. In speaking of him to Emerald Stoker, I had, if you remember, compared him to a gorilla, and what I had in mind had been an ordinary run-of-the-mill gorilla, not the large economy size. What he looked like now was King Kong. His fists were clenched, his eyes glittered, and the dullest observer could have divined that it was in not so sunny a spirit that he was regarding Bertram Worcester. Chapter 6 To ease the strain, I asked him if he would have a cucumber sandwich, but with an impassioned gesture, he indicated he was not in the market for cucumber sandwiches, though I could have told him, for I had found them excellent, that he was passing up a good thing. A muffin? No, not a muffin either. He seemed to be on a diet. Worcester, he said, his jaw muscles moving freely. I can't make up my mind whether to break your neck or not. Not would have been the way my vote would have been cast, but he didn't give me time to say so. I was amazed when I heard from Madeline that you had had the effrontery to invite yourself here. Your motive, of course, was clear. You've come to try to undermine her faith in the man she loves, and so doubts in her mind. Like a creeping snake. He added, and I was interested to learn that this was what snakes did. You had not the elementary decency when she had made her choice to accept her decision and efface yourself. You hoped to win her away from think no all. Feeling that it was about time I said something, I got as far as I, but he shushed me with another of those impassioned gestures. I couldn't remember when I'd met anyone so resolved on hogging the conversation. No doubt you will say that your love was so overpowering you could not resist the urge to tell her of it and plead with her. Utter nonsense. Despicable weakness. Let me tell you, Wooster, I have loved that girl for years and years, but never by word or look have I so much as hinted it to her. It was a great shock to me when she became engaged to this man Finknuttle, but I accepted the situation because I thought that was where her happiness lay. Though stunned, I kept a stiff upper lip. And my feelings to myself, I sat like patience on a monument, tight, and said nothing that would give her a suspicion of how I felt. All that mattered was that she should be happy. If you ask me if I approve of fake Nuttall as a husband for her, I admit frankly that I do not. To me, he seems to possess all the qualities that go to make the perfect pill, and I may add that my opinion is shared by her father. But he is the man she has chosen, and I abide by her choice. I do not crawl behind fake Nuttall's back and try to prejudice her against him. 
Very creditable. What did you say? I said I had said it didn't credit. Very white of him, I said I thought. Oh, well, I suggest to you, Worcester, you follow my example. And let me tell you, I shall be watching you closely. And I shall expect to see less of this head stroking you were doing when I came in. And if I don't, all. Just what he proposed to do was not revealed. Though I was able to hazard a guess. For at this moment, Madeline returned. Her eyes were pinkish and her general aspect down among the wines and spirits. I will show you to your room, Bertie. She said in a pale, saint-like voice. And Spode gave me the warning look again. Be careful, Wooster. Be very careful. He said as we went out. Madeline seemed surprised. Why did Roderick tell you to be careful? Ah, well, that we shall never know. Afraid I might slip on the parquet floor, maybe, do you think? He sounded as if he was angry with you. Had you been quarrelling, Bertie? Good heavens, no! Our talk was conducted throughout in an atmosphere of the utmost cordiality. Well, I thought he might be annoyed at your coming here. On the contrary, nothing could have exceeded the warmth of his welcome to Totley Towers. Well, I'm so glad it would pain me so much if you and he were... Oh, there's Daddy. We had reached the upstairs corridor, and Sir Watkin Bassett was emerging from his room, humming a light air. It died on his lips when he saw me, and he stood staring at me aghast. He reminded me of one of those fellows who spends the night at a haunted house, and they find the next morning dead to the last drop, with a look of awful horror on their faces. Oh, Daddy, said Madeline, I forgot to tell you. I asked Bertie to come here for a few days. Pop Bassett swallowed painfully. When you say a few days... At least a week, I hope. Good God. If not longer. Great heavens. There's tea in the drawing room, Daddy. I shall need something stronger than tea. Said Pop Bassett in a low husky voice. And off he tottered, a broken man. The sight of his head disappearing as he made for the lower regions where the snootful awaited him brought to my mind a poem I used to read as a child. I've forgotten most of it, but it was about a storm at sea, and the punchline ran, We are lost, the captain shouted as he staggered down the stairs. Daddy seems quite upset about something, said Madeline. He did convey that impression, I said, speaking austerely, for the old blister's attitude had offended me. I can make allowances for him, because naturally a man of regular habits doesn't like suddenly finding Worcesters in his midst. But I did feel that he might have made more of an effort to bear it up. Think of the Red Indians, Bassett, I would have said to him, had we been on better terms, pointing out that they were never in livelier spirits than when being cooked on both sides of the steak. This painful encounter, following so quickly on my conversation, if you could call a conversation with Spode, might have been expected to depress me. But this was far from being the case. I was so uplifted by the official news that all was well between M. Bassett and G. Finknottle that I gave little thought to it. It's never, of course, the ideal setup to come to stay at a house where your host shudders to the depths of his being at the mere sight of you and is compelled to rush to where the bottles are and get restorative, but the Worcesters can take the rough with the smooth, and the bonging of the gong for dinner some little time later found me an excellent fettle. It was to all intents and purposes, with a song on my lips, that I straightened my tie and made my way to the trough. Dinner is usually the meal at which you catch Bertram at his best, and certainly it's the meal I always most enjoy. Many of my happiest hours have been passed in the society of the soup, the fish, the pheasant, or whatever it may be, the souffle, the fruits in their season, and the spot of port to follow. They bring out the best in me. Worcester, those who have known me may have said, may be a pretty total loss during the daytime hours, but plunge the world into darkness, switch on the soft lights, Uncork the champagne, shove a dinner into him, and you'd be surprised. But if I am to sparkle and charm all and sundry, I make one proviso, viz. that the company be congenial, and anything less congenial than the company on this occasion I have seldom encountered. So Watkin Bassett, 
who was plainly still very much shaken at finding me on the premises, was very far from being the jolly old squire who makes the party go from the start. Beyond shooting glances at me over his glasses, and blinking as if he couldn't bring himself to believe I was real, and looking away with a quick shudder, he contributed little or nothing to what I have heard Jeeves call the feast of reason and the flow of soul. Add Spode, strong and silent, Madeline Bassett, mournful and drooping, Gussie, also apparently mournful, and Stiffy, who seemed to be in a kind of daydream, and you had something resembling a wake of the less rollicking type. Somber. That's the word I was trying to think of. The atmosphere was somber. The whole binge might have been a scene from one of those Russian plays my Aunt Agatha sometimes makes me take her son, Thomas, to, at the old Vic, in order to improve his mind, which, as is widely known, can do with all the improvement that's coming to it. It was about toward the middle of the meal that, feeling that it was about time somebody said something, I drew Pop Bassett's attention to the table's centerpiece. In any normal house, it would have been a bowl of flowers or something on that order. But this being Totley Tower, it was a small black figure carved of some material I couldn't quite put a name to. It was so gosh-awful in every respect that I presumed it must be something he had collected recently. My Uncle Tom was always coming back from sales with similar eyesores. Well, that's new, isn't it, I said. And he started violently. I suppose he just managed to persuade himself that I was merely a mirage and had been brought up with a round turn on discovering that I was there in the flesh. That thing in the middle of the table that looks like the end man in a minstrel show. It's something you've got since, uh, uh, since I was here last, hmm? Tactless of me, I suppose, to remind him of that previous visit of mine, and I oughtn't have to have brought it up. But these things slip out. Yes. He said, having paused for a moment to shudder. It is the latest addition to my collection. Daddy bought it from a man named Plank, who lives not far from here, at Hunkley-cum-Meston. Said Madeline. Attractive little bijou, I said. It hurt me to look at it, but I felt that nothing was to be lost by giving him the old oil. Just the sort of thing Uncle Tom would like to have, by Jove, I said, remembering. Aunt Dahlia was speaking to me about it on the phone yesterday and she told me Uncle Tom would give his eye teeth to have it in his collection. I'm not surprised. It looks valuable. It's worth a thousand pounds, said Stiffy, coming out of her coma and speaking for the first time. As much as that, golly! Amazing, I was thinking, that magistrates could get to be able to afford expenditure on that scale just by persevering through the years, finding people, and sticking to the money. What is it, soapstone, I asked? I had said the wrong thing. Amber. Pop Bassett snapped, giving me the sort of look he had given me in heaping measures on the occasion when I had stood in the dock before him at Bosher Street Police Court. Black Amber. Of course, yes. That's what Andalia said, I recall. She spoke very highly of it. Let me tell you, extremely highly. Indeed. Oh, absolutely. I'd been hoping this splash of dialogue would have broken the ice, so to speak, and start us off kidding back and forth like the guys and dolls in one of those old-world saloons you hear about. But no. Silence fell again, and eventually, at long last, the meal came to an end, and two minutes later I was on my way to my room, where I proposed to pass the rest of the evening with an Earl Stanley Gardner I'd brought with me. No sense, as I saw it, in going and mixing with the mob in the drawing-room, and having Spode glare at me, and Pop Bassett sniff at me, and Madeline Bassett, as likely as not, sing old English folk songs at me till bedtime. I was aware that in executing this quiet sneak I was being guilty of a social gaffe which would have drawn raised eyebrows from the author of a book of etiquette, but the great lesson we learn from life is to know when and when not to be the centre of things. Chapter 7 I haven't mentioned it till now, having been all tied up with the other matters, but during dinner, as you may well imagine, something had been puzzling me not a little. The mystery, to wit, of what on earth had become of Emerald Stoker. At that lunch of ours, she had told me in no uncertain terms that she was off to Totley on the four o'clock train that afternoon, and however leisurely its progress, it must have got there by this time, because Gussie had travelled on it and he had fetched up at the joint all right, but I could detect no sign of her on the premises. It seemed to me, sifting the evidence, that only one conclusion could be arrived at, that she'd been pulling the Worcester leg. But why? With what motive? 
That's what I was asking myself as I sneaked up the stairs to where Earl Stanley Gardner awaited me. If you had cared to describe me as perplexed and bewildered, you would have been perfectly correct. Jeeves was in the room when I got there, going about his gentleman's gentlemanly duties, and I put my problem up to him. Did you ever see a film called The Vanishing Lady, Jeeves? No, sir, I rarely attend cinematographic performances. Well, it was about a lady who vanished, if you follow what I mean. And the reason I bring it up is that a female friend of mine has apparently disappeared into the thin air, leaving not a rack behind, as I once heard you put it. Highly mysterious, sir. You said it. I seek in vain for a solution. When I gave her lunch yesterday, she told me she was off on the four o'clock train to go and stay at Totley Towers. And the point I want to drive home is that she hasn't arrived. Remember the day I lunched at the Ritz? Yes, sir. You were wearing an alpine hat. There is no need to dwell on the hat, Jeeves. No, sir. If you really want to know, several fellows at the drones asked me where I got it. No doubt with a view to avoiding your hatter, sir. I saw that nothing was going to be gained by bandying words. I turned the conversation to a pleasanter and less controversial subject. Well, Jeeves, you'll be glad to hear everything's all right. Sir. About the loot we were speaking of. No rift. Sound as a bell. I have it straight from the horse's mouth that Miss Bassett and Gussie are sweethearts still. The relief was stupendous. I hadn't expected him to clap his hands and leap about, because of course he never does, but I wasn't prepared for the way he took this bit of hot news. He failed altogether to string along with my jocund mood. I fear, sir, that you are too sanguine. Miss Bassett's attitude may well be such that you have described, but on Mr. Finknottle's side I am sorry to say there exists no little dissatisfaction and resentment. The smile which had been splitting my face faded. It's never easy to translate what you said into basic English, but I had been able to grab this one off the bat, and what I believe the French call a frisson went through me like a dose of salts. You mean she's a sweetheart still, but he isn't. Precisely, sir. I encountered Mr. Finknottle in the stable yard as I was putting away the car, and he confided his troubles in me. His story occasioned me grave uneasiness. Another frisson passed through my frame. I have the unpleasant feeling you sometimes get that centipedes in large numbers are sauntering up and down your spinal column. I feared the worst. But, but what has happened? I faltered, if it falters the word. I regret to inform you, sir, that Miss Bassett has insisted on Mr. Finknottle adopting a vegetarian diet. His mood is understandably disgruntled and rebellious. I tartered. In my darkest hour I had never anticipated anything as bad as this. You wouldn't think it to look at him, because he's small and shrimp-like and never puts on weight. But Gussie loves food. Watching him tucking into his rations at the drones, a tapeworm would raise its hat respectfully, knowing that it was in the presence of a master. Cut him off, therefore, from roasts and boils, and particularly from cold steak and kidney pie, a dish of which he is inordinately fond, and you turned him into something fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils, as the fellow said, the sort of chap who would break an engagement as soon as look at you. At the moment of my entry, I had been about to light a cigarette, and now the lighter fell from my nerveless hand. She's made him become a vegetarian? So Mr. Finknottle informed me, sir. No chops? No, sir. No steaks? No, sir. Just spinach and similar garbage? So I gather, sir. But, but why? I understand that Miss Bassett has recently been reading the life of the poet Shelley, sir, and has become converted to his view that the consumption of flesh foods is unspiritual. The poet Shelley held strong opinions on this subject. I picked up the lighter in a sort of trance. I was aware that Madeline B. was as Spotty as they come in the matter of stars and rabbits, and what happened when fairies blew their wee noses, but I had never dreamed that her goofiness would carry her to such lengths as this. But as the picture rose before my eyes of Gussie at the dinner table, picking with clouded brow at what had unquestionably looked like spinach, I knew that his story must be true. No wonder Gussie, in agony of spirit, had said that Madeline made him sick. Just so might a python at a zoo have spoken of its keeper, 
and the latter suddenly started feeding it cheese straws in lieu of daily rabbit. This is frightful, Jeeves. It is certainly somewhat disturbing, sir. If Gussie is seething with revolt, something will happen. Yes, sir. Is there nothing we can do? It might be possible for you to reason with Miss Bassett, sir. You would have a talking point. Medical research has established that the ideal diet is one in which animal and vegetable foods are balanced. A strict vegetarian diet is not recommended by the majority of doctors, as it lacks sufficient protein, and in particular does not contain the protein which is built up of the amino acids required by the body. Competent observers have traced some cases of mental disorder to this shortage. You tell her that? It might prove helpful, sir. I doubt it. I said blowing a despondent smoke ring. I don't think it would sway her. Nor on consideration do I, sir. The poet Shelley regarded the matter from the humanitarian standpoint rather than from that of bodily health. He said that we should show reverence for other life forms, and it is his views that Miss Bassett has absorbed. A hollow groan escaped me. Curse the poet Shelley. I hope he trips over a loose shoelace and breaks his ruddy neck. Too late, sir. He is no longer with us. Blast all vegetables! Yes, sir. Your concern is understandable. I may mention that the cook expressed herself in a somewhat similar vein when I informed her of Mr. Finknottle's predicament. Her heart melted in sympathy with his distress. I was in no mood to hear about Cook's hearts, soluble or otherwise, and I was about to say so when he proceeded. She instructed me to apprise Mr. Finknottle that if he were agreeable to visiting the kitchen at some late hour when the household had retired for the night, she would be happy to supply him with cold steak and kidney pie. It was as if the sun had come smiling through the clouds, or the long shot on which I had placed my wager had nosed its way past the opposition of the last ten yards and won by a short head. For the peril that had threatened to split, the basset fignonal axis had been averted. I knew Gussie from soup to nuts, cut him off from the proteins and amino acids, and you soured his normally amiable nature, turning him into a sullen hater of his species, who has nothing better than to bite his nearest and dearest and bite them good. Give him the steak and kidney pie outlet, thus allowing him to fulfill what they call his legitimate aspirations, and chagrin would vanish, and he would become his old lovable self again. The dark scowl would be replaced by the tender simper, the acid crack by the honeyed word, and all would be hotsy-totsy once more with his love life. My bosom swelled with the gratitude to the cook whose quick thinking had solved the problem and brought home the bacon. Who is she, Jeeves? Sir. This life-saving cook. I shall want to give her a special mention in my evening prayers. She is a woman by the name of Stoker, sir. Stoker? Did you say Stoker? Yes, sir. That's odd. Sir? Nothing, just a rather strange coincidence. Have you told Gussie? Yes, sir, I found him most cooperative. He plans to present himself in the kitchen shortly after midnight. Cold steak and kidney pie is, of course, merely a palliative. On the contrary, it's Gussie's favourite dish. I've known him to order it even on curry days at the drones. He loves the stuff. Indeed, sir. Well, that is very gratifying. Gratifying is the word. What a lesson this teaches us, Jeeves. Never to despair, never to throw in the towel, and turn our face to the wall, for there is always hope. Yes, sir. Would you be requiring anything further? Not a thing, thanks. My cup runneth over. Then I will be saying good night, sir. Good night, Jeeves. After that he was gone. After he'd gone, I put in about a half an hour on my Earl Stanley Gardner, but I found it rather difficult in following the thread and keeping my attention on the clues. My thoughts kept straying to this epoch-making cook. Strange, I felt, that her name should be Stoker. Some... Relation, perhaps. I could picture the woman so exactly. Stout, red-faced, spectacled, a little irritable, perhaps if interrupted when baking a cake or thinking out a sauce, but soft as butter of heart. No doubt something in Gussie's wan aspect had touched her. That boy needs feeding up, poor little fellow, or possibly she was fond of goldfish and had been drawn to him because he reminded her of them. Or she may have been a girl guide. At any rate, 
Whatever the driving motive behind her day's good deed, she had deserved well of Bertram, and I told myself that a thumping tip should reward her on my departure. Purses of gold should be scattered, and with a lavish hand. I was musing thus, and feeling more benevolent every minute, when who should blow in but Gussie in person, and I had been right in picturing his aspect as wan. He wore the unmistakable look of a man who has been downing spinach for weeks. I took it that he had come to ask me what I was doing at Toddley Towers, a point on which he might naturally be supposed to be curious, but that didn't seem to interest him. He plunged without delay into a forceful denunciation of the vegetable world as I've ever heard, oddly enough being more bitter about Brussels sprouts and broccoli than about spinach, which I would have expected him to feature. It was some considerable time before I could get a word in, but when I did, my voice dripped with sympathy. Yes, Jeeves was telling me all about it, I said, and my heart bled for you. And jolly well it ought to have, in buckets, if you were a spark of humanity in you. He retorted warmly. Words cannot describe the agonies I've suffered, particularly when staying at Brinkley Court. I nodded. I knew just what an ordeal it must have been. With Andalia's peerless chef wielding the skillet, the last place where you want to be on a vegetable diet is Brinkley. Many a time when enjoying the old relative's hospitality, I've regretted that I had only one stomach to give to the evening's bill of fare. Night after night, I had to refuse Anatole's unbeatable eatables, and when I tell you that two nights in succession he gave us those mignonettes de Paulette petite duck of his, and on another occasion his timbales de rest de Toulousaine, you will appreciate what I went through. It being my constant policy to strew a little bit of happiness as I go by, I hasten to point out the silver lining in the seas. Well, your suffering must have been terrible, I agreed. But courage, Gussie. Think of the cold steak and kidney pie. I had struck the right note. His drawn face softened. Oh, so Jeeves told you about that. He said the cook had it all ready and waiting for you. And I remember thinking at the time that she must be a pearl among women. That is not putting it all too strongly. She's an angel in human shape. I spotted her solid merits. The moment I saw her. You've seen her? Of course I've seen her. You can't have forgotten that talk we had when I was in the cab about to start off for Paddington. Though why you should have got the idea that she looks like a Pekingese is more than I can imagine. Eh? Who? Emerald Stoker. She doesn't look in the least like a Pekingese. What's Emerald Stoker got to do with this? He seems surprised. Didn't she tell you? Tell me what? That she was on her way here to take office as Totley Towers cook. I goggled. I thought for a moment that the privations through which he was passing must have unhinged this newt fancier's brain. Did you say cook? Surprised she didn't tell you. I suppose she felt that you weren't to be trusted to keep her secret. She would of course have spotted you as a babbler from the outset. Yes, she's the cook all right. But, but why is she a cook? I said getting down to the res in that direct way of mine. She explained that fully to me on the train. It appears she's dependent on a monthly allowance from her father in New York, and normally she gets by reasonably comfortably on that. But early this month, she was unfortunate in her investments on the turf. Sunny Jim in the three o'clock at Kempton Park. I recall the horse to which he referred. Only prudent second thoughts had kept me from having a bit of it myself. The animal ran sixth in a field of seven, and she lost all she had. She was then faced with the alternative of applying to her father for funds, which would have necessitated a full confession of her rash act, or seeking some gainful occupation, which would tide her over till, as she put it, the United States Marines arrived. She could have touched me or her sister Pauline. My good ass, a girl like that doesn't borrow money. She's way too proud. She decided to become a cook. She tells me she didn't hesitate more than about 30 seconds before making her choice. I wasn't surprised. To have come clean to the paternal parent would have been to invite hell of the worst description. 
Old Stoker was not the type of father who laughs indulgently when informed by a daughter that she has lost her chemise and foundation garments at the races. I don't suppose he has ever laughed indulgently in his life. I've never seen him even smile. Apprised of his child's goings-on, he would have unquestionably have blown his top and reduced her to the level of a fifth-rate bower. I have been present on occasions when the old God help us was going good, and I can testify that his boiling point is low. Quite rightfully, she had decided that silence was best. It was a load off my mind to be able to file away the Emerald Stoker mystery in my case book as solved, for I disliked being baffled, and the thing had been weighing on me. But there were one or two small points to be cleared up. How did she happen to come to Totley? I must have been responsible for that. During our talk at the studio party, I remember mentioning that Sir Watkin was in the market for a cook, and I suppose I must have given her his address, for she applied to the post and got it. These American girls have such enterprise. She enjoying the job? Thoroughly, according to Jeeves. She's teaching the butler Romy. I hope she skins him to the bone. No doubt she will when he is sufficiently advanced to play for money. And she tells me that she loves to cook. What's her cooking like? I could answer that. She had once or twice given me dinner at her flat, and the browsing had been impeccable. It melts in your mouth. Hasn't melted in mine, said Gussie bitterly. Oh well, he added, a softer light coming into his eyes. There's always that steak and kidney pie. And on this happier note, he took his departure.